This is Alicia Free, a badass belly dancer, musician, and real food enthusiast, here to help you feel a little lighter. Each show will dive into music that makes us want to dance. We'll share secrets of looking smoking hot in costume and everyday life. We'll dote on delicious whole food that makes us glow. And I'll throw in a damn sexy dance move you can try at home. I just don't know where to begin with Dawn Divine, a.k.a. Davina. She has created so many costume-creating resources for our dance community and influenced many of our costumes. I remember borrowing the book from Turban to Toe Ring from my very first belly dance teacher, June Sini in Ithaca, New York. It came out in 2000, which was the year that I started dancing and started making my own belly dance costumes. And that book is still precious to me. Dawn started belly dancing in the 80s as a teen. 22 plus books later, it is an honor to have Dawn on A Little Lighter. On your website, davina.us, that's D-A-V-I-N-A, you wrote, my mission in life is to help people make beautiful, well-designed, perfectly fitting costumes. Davina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. So you are a do-it-yourself queen, and you have taught so many of us how to make our own costumes with your books and your articles and your videos and your Instagram posts. What is it about DIY projects that lights you up? Well, this goes back to my superhero origin story, Davina, the superhero. I really wanted to be a professional dancer. And there comes a point in time when you're taking jazz tap modern, when you fall and you smash that ankle and have to have reconstructive surgery. You know, that was my painful moment. And I rose from that wanting to be a costume designer. If I can't be on the stage, I wanted to be behind the stage. And at that time, I knew that there was no way I was going to become a rockette at the age of 17. I didn't want to give up dancing forever. So I was pushed by the owner of the studio where I was costuming to pay for my classes. And she wanted to keep me around. I wanted to be around. And so she pushed me to hula first. And then the hula instructor went, oh, no, no, no. You need to be over there and belly dance. And so that's how I became a professional belly dancer at the age of 17. In 1984, we didn't have the resources, the internet, the movies, the television, the information. And I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The standards weren't what they are in LA or New York. You know what I mean? So it was easy for me to slide in first as a backup dancer, part-time, and then a regular Friday night gig at La Placa, <laughs> the Greek restaurant. That's how I became focused on fashion and costume design. I'm kind of jealous when I hear these stories about dancing back in the day. It's like, well, I've only taken one belly dance class and all of a sudden I was performing in a restaurant. <laughs> but you don't hear those stories anymore, right? Well, eight or nine years of classical Western dance training made it possible for me to pick up belly dance very quickly. My early performances were full of tricks, right? Hip lift, hip lift, giant back bend, hip lift, hip lift, roll around the floor with the thing balanced on my head. How do the judges on So You Think You Can Dance say it? There wasn't a lot of dance content in my performances. You know, this is keeping it real. I was cute. I was tall. I had beautiful costumes, of course. I took my first belly dance class right after my 17th birthday in September. I went into the class and by December, I had my first debut for money. So oh it wasn't goodness. exactly one class. It was more like three months, but with so much dance background and not very much belly dance content in the performances. But that's all right. I learned. I became better. <laughs> I got over myself. <laughs> Love it. Danceable ritual. 
We love hearing about danceable rituals in this podcast. And I heard you say in the interview on Belly Dance Geek Clubhouse that you go from Dawn to Davina when you put on your false eyelashes. Yes. Tell us more about your whole process of putting your costume on. For me, the transformation from just an ordinary woman into the superhero glamazonian belly dancer really takes place while I'm, you know, in my dressing robe when I first put on my makeup. Because, you know, there's a point in time where I go, well, I don't wear this eyeshadow and I don't glue rhinestones onto my face. I don't do this. I don't do that. There's a transformation that happens with the paint and the glamour. And that's why I jokingly say, if I'm not wearing fake eyelashes, I'm Dawn. And when I'm wearing fake eyelashes, I'm Davina. I'm actually Davina anytime. I've been Davina so long, it just is really my name. But yeah, so for me, the ritual starts with the makeup way before the hair, the costume, the jewelry, and all of the other layers and that five layer system I'm always touting. You know, I always think of that layer number two, the makeup as being the real important transformative moment. Because once the makeup's on, then I suddenly am not slouching as much. And I'm getting into the mindset and I'm listening to my set for the night. Or if it's live music, something similar in vibe or maybe a recording by the band that I'm dancing to, even if it's not the specific piece. So there's that music, there's that makeup moment. And between those two things, that creates that liminal space where I enter as Dawn and I exit as Davina. It's that moment of music and paint and looking at myself in the mirror and, you know, making love to my eyes as I brush on the different layers of war paint. (laughs) I'm such a drag queen. What can I say? (laughs) And of course, I don't wear my costume to events. Usually I usually get there and change in the back of my car, you know, out of my trunk, digging around like a fiend, not glamorous at all, but totally keeping it real. Tell us something memorable that you learned while you were earning your BA in art history and that you've applied to your costume making career. So I started off in fashion school and this was an associate's degree in a fashion program in San Diego, California. And I wanted to make every outfit in my classes at belly dance costumes. And they were like, no, 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 Dawn, this is a fashion program. You can't just make belly dance costumes. Well, it came to the attention of my faculty advisor that I was a problem child. (laughs) And she sent me to a new faculty advisor whose name was Margie. And when I walked into Margie's office, she had a wall devoted to belly dance. And she's like, you're here because you're a belly dancer and I'm a belly dance instructor when I'm not here being an academic advisor. And let's get you out of here and to UCSD, which is where I got my BA. And of course, I started taking belly dance classes with her. I was like, what? Belly dance classes? I'm going to study with you. So she became my dance mom. I was able to channel my love of belly dance costumes into a new facet, a new age of my belly dance career. And I was able to focus on the curriculum. And okay, we're designing pants. All right. They're not harem pants. They're just pants with a zipper. Okay, I got it. So I think that that was my most memorable moment. When I was still 17, I met my dance mom and I started dancing professionally in San Diego. Again, not the best dancing on the planet, but everyone's got to start somewhere. So that was it. It was finding my dance mom in fashion school. Mm, So nice how the universe lines up for us, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. Now it's time for some music. Danceable song. 
Is there a danceable song that you'd like to share? So I was talking to my husband about this last night and I said, hey, what do you think is a good song for me to share during this talk? And he went, well, you've got to share Baby Got Back. And I went, Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot. So in the late 80s, early 90s in San Diego, I would sometimes put Baby Got Back on and do performances. And I sort of became famous for them. And <laughs> we fast forward to 2010, people would ask me, can you come to my event and do a performance to Baby Got Back? And ultimately, I had a mega mix with Sir Mix-a-Lot, Richard Cheese's version <laughs> of Baby Got Back, and Jonathan Colton's version of Baby Got Back interspliced into a giant mega mix. So Jonathan Colton's version is a little kind of country, folky, slow, so it's great for Vale. And Richard Cheese has this great swinging, loungy vibe, which is fantastic as the finale. So it would be, you know, this high energy rap song followed by this slow veil piece followed by a swinging kicky lounge piece all the baby got back mega mix <laughs> oh my god when yeah. you just said veil and baby got back i was like wow jonathan colton's version i remember the first time i ever heard that song i remember where i was standing with my cousin with her cassette tape came and she put it in and i was like wow i remember <laughs> I, like i was like six by the time it caught up to me that's beautiful the song milkshake oh gosh Yes. Yeah, milkshake's fun. In San Diego, during the heyday of my professional belly dance career, going out and dancing in nightclubs earned me a lot of dance students. I started teaching after I got to UCSD. I founded a belly dance club on campus, right? And we would go to a nightclub. We were 21 and we would dance and then I would get students. That was my number one way of acquiring students was dancing informally in nightclubs, not at restaurants, because at restaurants, I was the low girl on the totem pole. But at the nightclub, I was the hottest thing. The 90s was sort of a moment where dancing was coalescing and starting the upper trajectory of popularity. And in San Diego at that time, it was mostly Greek restaurants. And in San Diego, we're only like an hour and a half drive from L.A. So we would drive up to L.A. and we had access to these amazing dancers like Fatim and Mesmera who were appearing on TV. We had access to dancers who appeared on Mork and Mindy because belly dance had infiltrated the world of popular entertainment in the late 70s and through the 80s. So by the 90s, these were the dancers who were teaching in the Los Angeles area, a very showgirl, hybridized am cab american cabaret style and so i was lucky for being in that milieu to be able to study with those people so my dance mommy serena would load up her car with all of us little baby ducklings and we would go and take workshops in la and that was so beneficial nowadays we can study at home online with some of the international greats but at that time i was just so lucky to have that access and because I primarily danced at Greek restaurants, I got to do the Uzo dance on a regular basis. So the Uzo dance, I've never seen it anywhere else other than in five restaurants in San Diego in the 90s. And that became sort of my, whoa, Opa, I'm going to do the Uzo dance. And so that involved dancing around the restaurant with a waiter behind me selling glasses of Uzo. I had a glass of Uzo on my head. So very much a balance oriented thing. Then everybody would get to the dance floor 
floor. So I'm visualizing a restaurant that is still there today in National City. There's a Greek restaurant. Oh, what's the name? I'll have to look it up. We'd get to the middle of this tiny dance floor. We'd put our ouzo glasses on the ground and we would literally lay on the ground take the glass between our teeth and shoot it. I had a real glass, but their glasses were like the medicine cups that come on cough syrup, like one of those. And you get your teeth and you and you'd shoot it. Yeah. And so that was like the halftime entertainment that we would do whatever dancer was there. And so I got really good at balancing shot glasses on my head and things you never expect to do as a dancer and things you would never do now. I can't even imagine they still do that. Maybe they do. I don't know. But yeah, that was my most memorable moment from San Diego is the Uso dance. So you're down on your belly. Looking kind of like a harbor seal. No. I danced at a lot of Greek restaurants. Now there's more hookah bar dancing and more Persian and Middle Eastern dancing in San Diego. Nice. Have you ever heard the song Tarangelis? Yes. Tarangelis. Yeah. I never did much professional dancing in Los Angeles, but I did a lot of group performances and showcases up in that area. Danced at the Cascades, danced to so many great live bands in Los Angeles. Oh my God. Persian bands, Greek bands, Armenian bands, jam bands made from people of all different stripes of the Mediterranean. So much fun. Ah, those were the days. What are the fashion trends you're seeing in our worldwide belly dance community these days? Oh, what a great question. In Egypt right now, what the current elite dancers are wearing falls into two categories. I think that there's a native Egyptian style amongst dancers that is including a lot of bike shorts. Bike shorts are having their moment right now. So they're getting away with thinner, straighter skirts worn over bike shorts, much higher waisted in that sort of 1950s movie style, think Salome movies. During that era, they went up to the belly button because it was required by the Hayes rules in Hollywood to cover the belly button right? But we're seeing dance styles with a higher waistline and bike shorts underneath that are very clearly bike shorts and not just nudity. In addition to bike shorts, you see a lot of strappy things on your legs like garters or headdresses that are being worn on the upper thigh. You see a lot of attention being drawn with jewelry or rhinestones to the upper thigh area. And of course, the Dina bra, which isn't actually a supportive garment. So it's kind of a teaser, right? Dina can wear them because it basically pops onto her synthetic breasts. I mean, they are hers. She paid for them. But the bra itself isn't really a viable bra for women who have more naturalistic, not gravity-defying breasts. So the Dina bra is still what's happening now. I think the Dina bra trend is going to turn because it's becoming clear that these Dina bra-style costumes are only good for people below a certain age, whether their bust tissue is nice and firm, or people who have enhancements. Ditem from Turkey is also an enhanced dancer. And so her bras tend to be very small, non-supportive. So basically a covering rather than a supportive bra. We'll get to Turkey in a moment. But the other style that's happening in Egypt is this Russian-influenced style using lots of lace, using lots of stretchy materials, and lots of rhinestones that basically enhance the figural quality of the lace. And that really comes from this Russian, Ukrainian, Eastern European design aesthetic. And because we have a lot of dancers from that area currently operating 
operating professionally in Egypt. We see that style. And then I think another subtrend is that real ruffly skirt with horsehair braid in it. That's an influence that comes from South America. The South American dancers who are dancing in Egypt are bringing that flavor of flamenco and Spanish dancing. And that is a trend as well. So you've got these Russian styles, you've got this giant voluminous skirt style, and then you also have the straight skirt, bike shorts, Dina bra ensemble. And that's what I'm saying. And you know me, I'm always hoping for a resurgence in a suit. I want to see more suit costumes because I'm obsessed. We want what we want. And then over in Turkey, Didem is really leading the Turkish dance scene and consequently the styles. And she's really doing the reflective bra and belts paired with nude color skirts and nude color costume accessories. So she's really going for that when she's performing in a dark environment, going for that look that looks very, very naked. And she's doing it by using those nude illusion fabrics and soft gold champagne colors paired with metallic or rhinestone bronze belt sets that are very monochrome. So those are the styles I see. How about you? What do you see in the world? I like the bedazzled bike shorts. Oh, there's something stuck to those. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like to use heat fix rhinestones on bike shorts. They really do hold up pretty well. And it's an easy thing to do with a kit you can buy. They have cheap and cheerful kids rhinestoning kits at Michael's these days. So just go get some bike shorts and bedazzle them. And a suit. I love the real suit. I love 1920s. That stuff is so gorgeous. Uh-huh. But I think they're doing a really good job with a lot of the different a suit prints. When you're at a distance, you're like, ooh, it's gorgeous. They're comfortable to wear. I have a Melodia yeah. top and skirt. And let me tell you, it feels like you're wearing pajamas when yeah, you're wearing, wearing it. You know, right now, a suit is having a moment. I feel partially responsible for that because of my last book and because of my flooding the web with a suit, a suit, a suit. But I really love that more spandex costumes add a layer of comfort to both our performance attire, but also in our semi-on-duty belly dance wardrobes, you know, like what we're wearing to festivals, what we're wearing to go watch a show. I think we're in a moment where we can be comfortable and glamorous at the same time. I didn't realize that those were headpieces that people were taping to their thighs. Here's the thing to do. Type in bridal applique, okay? Or bridal applique with rhinestone. They're usually white or champagne color because those are actually designed and made for the bridal industry. And all you have to do is put a piece of elastic on it sized for your thigh, sized for your head. Those aren't actually designed to be headdresses. Those are just bridal appliques that are being used as is or are being more heavily embellished with glue on rhinestones. And you're looking for something that's 8 to 12 inches, depending on the size and shape of your head and how far forward or back you like to wear it. But you know your thigh measurement, you buy something and just add elastic. It's a really affordable accessory piece to hand make. You can even sew it by hand. You don't even need a machine. Mm. There's your costuming tip for the day. Bridal applique. If you go for AB crystals, wear an AB necklace. It'll tie in your ensemble and viewers will go, wow, she's really got it. Put an applique on a clip and clip it to your shoe. And then you can take it from head to toe. Let's do some dancing. Damn sexy dance move. Davina, what's a dance move that you love that you can teach us to do right now? Here's my disclaimer. I'm over 50. I'm not as fit or svelte or as flexible. And let me tell you, there are dancers over 50 who are flexible and svelte. I'm talking just about me. I did a lot of tricks in my youth. I did a lot of backbends and my back is paying for it now in my 50s. Just saying. 
Anyways, I really love body undulations. I wear a lot of suit robes because my stomach region is not ready for prime time, if you know what I mean. So in a full length suit robe with those metal stitches going down the front, a undulation of the body very much shows under stage lights. And you don't have to do a lot. It's a very mellow move and body undulation. But I like to start at the bottom. I like to start in a seated position and then push every everything up and forward. So hips up and forward, stomach up and forward, chest up and forward, and then my head flick. And so I like to roll it up. I like to start as deep as I can go that night. Seating position, which makes the move look so much more dramatic. And it looks great on stage if you do it as a trio. One to the right, one to the left, come to the center, lift it up with a double chest bump, boom, boom at the top. And if I can pop my chest hard enough to make my jewelry fling off my body, that's my ultimate goal. So deep knee bend, body wave up, chest pop with jewelry flinging force, vector. Let the jewelry fly. Gentle roll up on the right, gentle roll up on the left in the center. Bang, bang. I'm having a Hamsa moment right now. Right now, I want Hamsas on everything. That's just my taste right now. So I'm in the middle of making one of those giant assemblage necklaces that's all different Hamsas from different regions. And Hamsas, because they're flat fillets, they'll be like waving high when I do that (laughs) movement. Hi! Tell us about Studio Divino. It's a place where I make costumes, take pictures, and write about what I'm doing so I can help people learn how to do it themselves and make their own costumes. This is my sewing room, and this is one half of Studio Divina. This is where I store my costuming books, construction and design books. I store materials and supplies for projects. And right now, it is home to piles of a suit. Look at that. Do you see that? It's yeah. all those different colors. You got blue, yeah. red, green. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where I come to sew. I call it Studio Divina. I went through a rebranding in 1993. This is when I really started my business. That's when I wrote my first book. costume from the hip. Don't read that one. It's not good. <laughs> it's having its 30th year anniversary next year. Three zero. As soon as I'm done with this soup book, I'm going to go into reworking a costume for the hip. The 30 year revision. Everything's changing. I want people to be able to upcycle, recycle, save money, extend the length of time that their costume is viable to be able to buy secondhand and fit it, upgrade. I want people to have that power. Knowledge is power is my key mandate. So my goal is to share all of these skills that I feel every dancer should know, but it's hard to learn right now because we're in an age where people buy ready-made. They go to an event or they buy offline that's ready-made, doesn't ever fit right. And then we see that result in dancers wearing costumes that are not fitting as perfectly as they could fit. And then we have a resale market that's flooded with dance costumes that didn't work out. So I want to prevent that from happening. I want people to make good decisions as a buyer, good decisions as a dancer, good decisions as a maker. And design is the process of making an infinite number of tiny decisions. Is it going to be red or blue? Is it going to be fusion? Or is it going to be ethnographic? Is it going to be glam? You know, all these little tiny myriad decisions. My goal is to help people make those effectively for their needs and help them build the skill set to make it happen. 
So cool. And I'm not sure when this will air, but I've seen the class that you're going to teach in Mahin or the lecture you're going to give for with Mahin. I did. And- I did that talk yeah. oh, last week. Did. Ah, okay. I did Great. that talk last go? week. Yeah. The design code. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> we went half an hour over and we had a huge Q&A session. So awesome. not only did the talk go a little bit longer because I went into depth, we also went back into the slide deck and we talked about the principles and elements of design. So that class was the first week of Design One. So if you were going to go to a university and take an introduction to design class, that was sort of a combination of the first two introductory lectures, the first week of design class, where you cover the overview, what we're going to do in this class over the next 10 weeks. And so I did that content, but with belly dance images pulled from the web, from dealers, from performers, screen grabs from videos of dancing, history stuff, current stuff, my stuff. So all that design content was paired with belly dance imagery so that people could really see how those things apply to belly dance costuming choices and design. Awesome. Uh, I love how you encourage us to sit with what we already have and make it something we love, you yeah. know, because there's so much just get rid of it or buy something that's garbage, perform in it once and throw it out for the next to yeah. whatever. And I remember I was interviewing Mael and she flies to the Middle East and buys her costumes and they're gorgeous. And I'm like, I find mine on the sidewalk, you know? Like I find some of my favorite costumes. I'm like, oh, wow, somebody gave this away. And, you know, they put it out in front of their house and, you know, and then I modify it. And she was like, oh, it's because you're American. You guys have the freedom to do that. And I'm like, oh, it is like, I'm going to do whatever I want with my costume. But to a certain mm-hmm. extent, within the realm of respectability and you <laughs> well, know. basic rules covered. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's a set of basic rules. I'm at least subconsciously. <laughs> But I love how she brought that to my attention. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't think I have to do it one way, you know? We have a lot of flexibility Mm -hmm. here. I think that comes from the polyglot nature of belly dance in the United States. Since the earliest days of belly dance in the United States, it was a mixture of cultures. So you might have a Turkish drummer and an Armenian oudist and a Lebanese singer and an Egyptian tabla player. So by its very nature, the club world in New York City in Boston, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, those scenes were a composite of cultures, which meant that the costuming wound up being a composite of cultures, which then kind of got the name AMCAB, American Cabaret Costuming, not intrinsically tied to one specific country, but rather reflecting the melting pot ideology of dance dance spaces in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it's with us today. Yeah. So what are your secrets to finding a suit that feels good on your skin? So number one is right now, today in Egypt, they are making a suit fabrics that are much softer than they did in the 2000s. So the suit industry almost died in the 80s. There were very few women taking on this embroidery art form that was indigenous to Upper Egypt. And they were down to just like a few really old aunties who still had this arcane knowledge. UNICEF, the United Nations Children and Women's Program, went into Upper Egypt and they discovered this art form and that women could make this culturally significant handicraft and sell it and support their children. 
they went back to the United Nations and UNESCO, the United Nations Historical Arm, they set up a program utilizing people in Egypt from the Egyptian Cultural Heritage Center. And it was funded by Italian investors to go in and do microloans for women to set up a suit studios to train a generation. So they made workbooks with explanations. They sent in people to help with training. They built these studios. And now we have a suit industry again. Well, when this was getting started, by the 90s, UNESCO had already come in and was starting to fund this. The suit tool, the tool, right, went from being stiff to being soft because that's what people wanted to buy. But at the beginning, it needed to be stiff in order to accommodate the new embroidery artists. And that stiffness is a wax coating. It isn't intrinsically stiff. It is treated at the industrial level with a wax coating that you can actually remove through hard work and labor. So you can remove it with an industrial surface stripper, which you can get from a dyeing company. So I use a product called Millsoft that is available from Dharma Trading. And Millsoft will industrially strip it and it'll become soft. And then you can add fabric softener to it. Now, if you don't want to invest in that kind of product, you can soak it in super hot water and then wash it and soak it in super hot water. And over the course of washing, it will get softer on its own. Millsoft just sort of speeds up that process and is a little more industrial product. Okay. So modernist suit doesn't need that treatment though. It is soft today because that generation of embroidery artists is two generations down and they now have the facility to work with that softer, more pliable mosquito netting. Let's get real. It's cotton mosquito netting. That's what it is. So they're doing an embroidery art on that. Now, that's the fabric. Let's talk about the stitches. The metal is aluminum now. Back in the 19-teens and 20s, it could be any sort of assorted metal alloy ranging from something that was a little more silver to something that was a little more copper or a little more brass. You never know. They used whatever metal they could find. Nowadays, it's uniformly made out of aluminum. So modernist suit is much lighter and aluminum is aluminum. So you want to make sure you don't get any acid on it. Like don't spill lemon juice on your suit because it will do weird things to the aluminum. Okay, so don't clean the suit in vinegar. Don't drop your suit garments in vinegar. Vinegar is the enemy. Well, anyways, so each individual artist is going to have a different capacity once they make it. So sometimes your stitches will be a little puffy and the breaks where they've snapped it off, you know, they make the stitch and then snap it. If that little edge is long, it will be scratchier right? So what you can do is lay your a suit piece on a table and take a rolling pin and roll it out. That flattens and compresses the stitches and helps smooth out those edges. So that will also reduce it. And if we're talking about a robe, if you love your robe, but it itches you, try wearing it inside out. Now I know the seams are going to show, but see if it's more comfortable for you inside out because those little edges are all on the inside, right? So if it's more comfortable to wear inside out, one, the audience won't know if you finish off those stitches. So you're just going to like flat fell your seams, just like go through, fold it under and hand sew it, go down the side, instant reverse dress, right? So if you find that it's too scratchy, you can reverse it. The next thing you can do is wear it over a mesh dress. So make a 
base layer of mesh. That could be a mesh body stocking that fits your body tightly, and then your suit would go over it. It could be made out of cotton. I frequently wear turtlenecks. Dark, opaque fabrics make the silver or gold or brass, whatever color you choose, makes the metal pop. So against your skin, with your skin showing through the mesh, the metal is not as distinctive. But when you wear something opaque underneath it, suddenly the metal pops. And so you can get just a dress off the rack, LBD, little black dress to wear under your suit. If you have purple a suit, a little purple dress. So you buy something to wear underneath it or make something. But if you can buy a dress for 40 bucks to wear under your suit robe, you're saving yourself time. And if you're making a dress, that's going to cost you that much in fabric. So I tend to suggest that dancers buy something to wear under their suit. So there you go. Roll it, wash it, flatten it. If it's still scratchy, try it on inside out. If it's still scratchy, put something underneath it. Brilliant. Yeah, spoken like a woman who's two books about a suit, right? So one book about a suit currently in print, it's called The Cloth of Egypt, all about a suit. It's available on Amazon and on my Etsy store or from specialty belly dance vendors. You can ask your vendor if they have it. My new book, the one that I'm working on currently, you saw that tub of a suit. Well, I'm making 30 suit costumes, documenting it, putting together a DIY how-to specifically on belly dance costuming with a suit. So it'll have a little bit of fusion, a little bit of ethnographic, and a little bit of glam in it. I'm doing some troops. I'm doing some solo individuals. And in each section, I'm going to be talking about a technique for working with a suit. So what I just told you all about cleaning and prepping, that is all actually actually in this upcoming book. I've recently written it. So that book will be out next spring sometime. We don't know how long it will be because we're going to make it as long as it needs to be. I love it. So we're looking at spring 2023, right? That's when you're talking about the release. Yes. We're building the costumes. I'm doing this thing, a festival of bras on my Patreon channel and on YouTube. I am making 30 bras for this book. 30 bras. So over the course of May and June, I'm going to be focusing entirely on bras. I'm going to make bras out of used to suit, bras for belly dance troops. So different coordination and matching strategies, bras for individuals with rhinestones, with jewelry, with coins, with everything. So I'm calling it Bra La Palooza 2022. Yes. And if you know the belly dance superstars, you'll know where Bra La Palooza came from. But yeah. So we're going to focus on making a lot of bras and I'm I'm going to document it, put it on the web, and it, of course, is going into this book. That's the true purpose for Brawlapalooza 2022. Now let's take a moment to dote on delicious whole food that makes us dancers glow. Featured light in my body food. What is one vegan whole food ingredient that you love? I am addicted to popcorn. Not corn, popcorn. Popcorn is my jam. I eat popcorn three or four times a week. I make it on the stove with the shaky shaky in an old pan, old school, the way they've been doing it for centuries. I love popcorn. I eat popcorn whenever I see it. (laughs) I'm that person at the theater with the giant popcorn going, no, this one's for me. You get your own. Yeah, popcorn. And I have different recipes, different toppings, different ways of using it. Yeah popcorn. You don't even have the turny crank. You do the actual shaky Mm -hmm. shake. Yeah. And I taught my husband how to make the perfect popcorn as well on the stove. He's got the little wrist technique. You go right, left, right, left really fast. And then you switch hands. You go from your elbow so you don't wear out your wrist. (laughs) 
of corn. It's affordable. It's nutritious. I know there's a lot of people who are anti-corn right now because of GMOs and stuff, but depending upon where you buy it, you can get good popcorn these days. And it is a good way of eating in a volumetric way. So I can have one cup of corn turns into a giant bowl of popcorn, which you can eat and enjoy for more than just three scoops. You know what I mean? So I really like having that volume. You ever put nutritional yeast on it? Yeah, I've used some nooch on it. I like to spray it with coconut oil and everything bagel seasoning and it'll stick and it's delicious. You can make it like Rice Krispies and add like marshmallow to it and turn it into a sweet treat, you know, like a Rice Krispie treat. The key is, is that you can't like pour screaming hot stuff or the popcorn will go. So you got to let it get a little cool and then you mix the popcorn into the hot stuff so that it doesn't like deflate. But uh, yeah, I do all this stuff with popcorn. That's a good whole food. I mean, that's corn. You've talked about a performance trinity, how the sound, visual, and movement go together. Who were some of the performers who really demonstrate this? I have a chart that I've made and published in many places. If you break the world of dance down into glam, fusion, and ethnographic, maybe into cross ties. So let's say that you want to be an authentic Egyptian style dancer circa today. You're going to buy the bike shorts, the skinny lycra skirt. You're going to wear the Dina bra. (laughs) And then you're going to go out of your way to pick some Egyptian music. Maybe you're going to go with some shabby. Maybe you're going to go with something classic, but you're going to want to use authentic Egyptian music to harmonize with the style of your costume. And then you're going to study the Egyptian movement vocabulary, what they're doing today, which isn't the same that they were doing in 1940, right? So you're going to study the dancers today. Now you've created a look where all three major facets, the dance, the music, and the costume, all are sending the same clear, cohesive message of authentic style. If you are going back into the past and you're saying, I want to be a dancer, I want to emulate something from the 1940s, you would do the same thing. You would find music from that era, costuming, and you'd look at movies from that era for visual information. If you wanted to be an LA nightclub dancer from the 80s, you want a retro vibe, you would study that. You would go, maybe I'm going to dance to some Harry Soroyan and I'm going to have a costume that's split up to my inch wide belt that's at the butt crack and bikini line, you know? know what I mean? So you're going to create a cohesive whole. But who is that for? I want you to think about this in terms of the audience. The audience that you're performing for might care. You might be dancing at a showcase where people are sensitive and knowledgeable to these subtle clues. And you're going to be showing your taste, your research abilities and skill, as well as your dancing abilities by saying, okay, I'm going to go for this authentic moment and unify the Trinity. Here in the United States, we can go the other way and we can say, okay, I'm going to do something hip hop fusion. I'm going to pull this. I'm going to wear some baggy trow with a hoodie. We can play around with things. But if you're specifically wanting to catch a time and a climb, a space, a time, a location, then it behooves you to look at all three in that trinity. It isn't required. But if you're performing for other belly dancers, for other people who are knowledgeable in our industry, it proves your chops as a dancer by presenting a cohesive whole. 
And it's so fun as an audience to be like, wait, I know what they're doing. I know why they are doing this music and they're wearing those earrings without the intentionality. And if you're dancing in a room full of aunties, they don't care. They don't know. If you're dancing at a nightclub in Los Angeles, you might want to catch the vibe of the ethnic derivation of the restaurant. Is it a Greek restaurant? Is it a Persian restaurant? Is it a Turkish restaurant, Lebanese, whatever? You might want to do the research so that when you place yourself as a dancer in that environment, that you're providing your audience with the music that coordinates with the vibe of the restaurant. And if I'm going to do a Lebanese thing, I'm going to wear some cha-cha shoes. Lebanese dancers almost always dance in high heels, right? The glam Lebanese dancers, you know, Turkish dancers, yeah, it varies. Egyptian dancers, it varies. But if I'm going for that level of authenticity, coming from that knowledgeable place, you know, a Turkish dancer is going to always dance with finger symbols, whereas an Egyptian dancer might go, oh, the band does that. I don't do that. Sorry. So you think about the choices that you make and root those choices from your knowledge base. You chose your chops as a researcher. I love that. I never thought about Mm -hmm. that part. Yeah. Well, you want to be knowledgeable. And I think that we all find that balance that we're comfortable and happy with. So I break the world of belly dance into different layers of participation. And there's a layer that I call the lifestyler. And that's somebody who has three plus years of dance education, like they took dance classes for three years, but now they attend workshops and they dance at home mostly. They don't really go to a class because they've gone beyond what's locally available to them. So they really embrace that lifestyle. Those are the people who are very knowledgeable, who spend time loving dance, not just as a working performer, but as somebody who is embracing dance as a lifestyle, right? And those are the people who are going to be sensitive to that trinity. The other people who are sensitive to that are if you're dancing in a place where there are a lot of natives around. Because, you know, I once had a Turkish gentleman in a Lebanese restaurant say, oh, that's a good song for this place. And I was like, oh, thank you very much. The place is called Kanzaman. You know, (laughs) they had a painting of Lebanon, right? Little cedars. They sold Magluba. Oh, Magluba. Oh. Anyways, but yeah, I would strategically choose Lebanese music to perform there so that if a Lebanese family came in to have dinner at a Lebanese restaurant, that they would go, oh. She gets it. And it ups your level of professionalism. Nice. The band that I'm in, we are learning Algerian music for a wedding. We're playing for an Algerian bride this mm-hmm. summer. And um, I'm just so excited because I'm hoping that they'll be eating dinner and they'll go, oh, oh, it's that song. It's, it's Rashid Al-Tahad. When we are performing for people that are actually from the places that birthed mm-hmm. this beautiful art and this beautiful music, and they appreciate it. Enjoy. Algerian music is so much fun. Oh, Yeah. You love jewelry. Tell us about some of your favorite pieces of jewelry these days. Where are they from? Why are they special? I tend to make my own jewelry from discarded, broken pieces as part of my mandate to reuse, recycle, and restore. Right now, I'm making a lot of assemblage pieces. What I do is I take a piece of chain, usually aluminum chain, and I put lobster claws on either end. And then I fill in the loops of the chain with individual broken pieces from other stuff. So I buy these treasure chest sort of, hey, Tribal Bazaar, send me a $50 treasure chest. And they fill up a flat rate box with jewelry. I open it up and then I have to do the cleaning and the polishing and the processing. And as I remove the grime of the centuries or the last 20 years, (laughs) you know, I lay everything out. And so I make these assemblages. I call them jean jinglers because they've got big lobster claws. You can attach them to 
into your jeans, which means you can wear them to a belly dance festival just looped around your jeans. So you instantly have a belly dancing costume, right? It's fun to wear. Oftentimes I size them 16 inches and longer so it can be worn as a necklace. And oftentimes I'll put a big dangle right in the middle and play with them. I like mixing different pieces. I like using coins and I like using bits and bobs from everywhere from India to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, Morocco, even U.S. components, cheap and cheerful jewelry from the ages, taking bits and bobs and putting it all together. We have so many things that exist on our planet to reuse. That's what I like to do. I like to reuse them. I like to put them back out there in a new form. Sweet. You went right into a coin question I have. Let's talk coins. The most beautiful coins are also Mm -hmm. the heaviest in my experience. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, here we have to disagree. (laughs) No, no, just kidding. (laughs) I'm going to be perfectly blunt. My favorite coins are Soroyan coins. Soroyan coins are musical. They were crafted by a musician. And so they make a sound unlike any other. They no longer are being made, RIP, Aries Soroyan, but they were made from the early 70s until about 2014-ish. So they were made for quite a bit of time. So there's a lot of them in the belly dance world, hiding in people's stashes, you know, (laughs) everywhere. But I love the sound, the tonal quality, because he used musical grade brass to make his coins. The silver ones are made out of German silver. It's a brass-based alloy composition that is silver. And when they touch, they ring like zills. So they have a musical tinkling quality that is unparalleled by any ethnographic coin. So while ethnographic coins are pretty and visually stunning, I really like a nice big Afghani coin. Let me tell you, I really love Saroyan coins for that look and sound and the musical quality when you're dancing and your costume is making a musical tone. It's a different experience. So how do you spell Saroyan? S-A-R-O-Y-A-N. Saroyan Mastercrafts. They're the maker of the world's best finger symbols, in my opinion. They have a very large website with finger symbols of all varieties. I know there are people who are like, oh, I like Turquoise International. I only buy authentic from Egypt. I believe Saroyans are the best. They are still being made in the Los Angeles area. They don't make the coins anymore. So the people who currently own the business are only working on finger symbols right now. And maybe they'll make coins in the future, but the best coins ever came out of that company. And they're now vintage and they're hard to find. I like to work with them a lot. So I'm always on the hunt to find Saroyan coins. And if you can get a hold of some, put them on a chain and jingle the chain. You'll hear that. I just don't have anything like that laying around. That part of a hip scarf with coins is the sound. I think about the weight. I think about the way it lays. I think about the way they look. I didn't think about the sound. Yeah. Let's use the hip scarf example. We buy a hip scarf. We get it. We put it on. If we love the sound, we love the hip wrap. Sometimes that component of sound is not something we consciously identify as something we love, right? So you'll shimmy and you'll go, oh yeah, a shimmy. Or, oh, this is really a loud one. I won't wear this in workshops and drown out the teacher. You know, I mean, we might make judgments like that, but you will be drawn to costume pieces that make a nicer tone than costume pieces that clank. And it's hard to describe, but it's not always something that we do consciously. And the more musical you are, the more you'll make that unconscious lean into coins that sound better. 
I've nice. done it consciously. Oh, I like throwing coins. <laughs> yeah. At this point in the podcast, I usually ask guests for a costume tip. And you have already <laughs> showered us with costume tips. So let's flip it. Tell us about your favorite costume malfunction. Oh my gosh. The one that happens all the time, even today as a professional costumer, is I will shake a tied hip scarf off. And it's now a joke amongst my friends, right? So I will often layer my hip wraps so that the top one I know is going to shimmy off. So that means there's a reveal, right? And I can time it and I can intentionally shake off my hip scarf. So it looks like an accident but it's really part of the act. Then I get to be like, oh, oh my gosh. Oh, you mean this thing? Lately in my world, everything's a suit. I'm wearing in a suit robe and then I have a flat, beautiful suit shawl just tied around my butt and knotted and then pinned and held in by an elastic band. That one's not coming off. Then over the top of it, I will put a coin belt that I hand tie that I expect to come off. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes I'll be like, I, I can't put that much force on my shimmy today. We all have those days. So I've turned a wardrobe malfunction into a costume reveal. So it identified something. And I noticed that audiences would go, oh, 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 you poor thing. You lost your belt. I'm like, yeah. Now you get to see this one. <laughs> it's horrible. I'm a horrible. Have a great answer for that one, Doug. <laughs> I mean, the worst wardrobe malfunctions are always when your bra pops open. And I right. can honestly say that's never happened to me. But it's part of the reason why I have written costume books. <laughs> because if your costume really fits well and is in good repair, you won't have that kind of disaster. But yeah, shimming off a belt, I'm down for that. Now everyone's oh, going to yeah. know that it's a fake. <gasps> oh. oh, the secret revealed. All right, my last question. You've told okay. us about your second mm -hmm. suit book. What is something else exciting that you have coming up? Yeah, so I think I've mentioned all three in the flow of this talk. I am on a deep dive into bras. I'm putting a lot of classes and workshops on Patreon, free content on YouTube, all related to making a suit bras. I'm calling it a festival because <laughs> I'm grandiose. I'm calling it Bralapalooza in honor of the belly dance superstars. As you know, or may not know, the belly dance superstars led by Miles Copeland got their start in the Lollapalooza tour of 2003. When Jane's Addiction was doing their farewell Lollapalooza, that is when Miles Copeland put together the first belly dance superstars. So after talking to Miles Copeland and hearing the story, I'm like, Bralapalooza. So every year I go through a couple of weeks with my own personal fantasy and my studio. This year, I'm sharing the fantasy with everyone. My obsession, my insanity. Brawlapalooza 2022 on social media, YouTube, Patreon, website, Facebook. I'm everywhere. My next book, which I'm currently working on, The Bras from Brawlapalooza into Belly Dance Costume in Detail, which is a book that's coming out in spring of 2023. It's a DIY instructional book. It's going to be filled with costuming and wardrobing. I'm calling it wardrobing because it's not just what you wear to perform. It's what you wear to go to events as a spectator, off-duty dancer, to the opera. These are things that you wear. So it's costuming from high glam to fusion through ethnographic with many, many examples. And then after that book is complete, I'm doing a head-to-toe rewrite of my first book, Costuming from the Hip, for its 30th anniversary. When I wrote that book, I had no idea it's 
still be here decades later. You got it all there planned you go. out. You got it all Hey, I'm a businesswoman. Yeah. You are a businesswoman. You got to plan mm-hmm. what's happening this month, this quarter, this year. You know, I've hit the space now where these are going to be my last costuming books and I'm switching gears and going more deep dive into history. So I've been Ooh. working on Salamania. So there will be a future book on Salome and the Salome phenomenon in Europe from 1850 to 1950, basically a hundred year span. And I'm also going to be publishing a book about belly dance at World's Fairs. So we're reaching a point where the hands are going to be given a break and my vast knowledge bank of belly dance history in America since the beginning is going to get published over the next five years. And the thing about writing a book is that it can last beyond a video. We don't know when YouTube will crash and burn. We don't know when Vimeo will be gone. We don't know when Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, all these things are very ephemeral. But my books are in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., underground and some archive. My books will be available even after I'm gone in libraries and personal collections and maybe even available for print. As a young dancer dancing in Greek restaurants in San Diego and going to fashion design school, I wanted to be a teacher. And when my teaching career was like, the economy's bad, we're cutting these programs, I was really able to steer my desire for teaching into publications. So I was very lucky to take that route in my life. Every time I've seen an opportunity, a whole, I've been able to produce it along the way and share it with the world. Yeah, I'm going to have a legacy. If you are a belly dance historian, write your book, write it, get it in print. Because the knowledge of the dancers of the 70s and 80s is going to slowly disappear from common knowledge because the research is going to pass with them. And I don't want that to happen. So publish your book. If you need help publishing a book, email me. That's what I do. I help people take their idea to a finished book and publish. This is the thing about you, Davina. You have given so many of us the courage to create for ourselves, to create out of our own hearts, not just go through life passively absorbing what comes our way, but to actually find things and create them and give them new life and make them feel so good on our bodies and make them dance like your hums is flipping up on you <laughs> as you do your chest pop, <laughs> you know? So thank you so much because you've poured so much of yourself, your time, your hands, your eyes producing these books. You've poured so much of yourself into helping us all create. And I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for the bottom of my heart for being on a little lighter and for sharing gobs and each time that you break things down in a clear way and you see there's five elements of this it's just so easy to wrap our heads around when you explain it that way and I know you took so much time to condense it and solidify it and clarify it like that so thank you so much thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast I'm happy to help spread the word about your wonderful podcast I love listening to podcasts while I'm working and so I look forward to sharing your past catalog and future episodes thank you so much for bringing this opportunity to the dance world I appreciate it thank you I hope you've enjoyed the show please subscribe and let your friends know what you got out of this show Dance with me on YouTube, listen to the music I've selected for you on Spotify, and try some free vegan recipes on AliciaFree.com. This is Alicia Free, hoping this show helps you feel a little lighter.